I now have the pleasure of introducing today's moderator who will introduce our panel. The Honorable Thomas Moore Donnelly serves as an Associate Judge of the Circuit Court of Cook County. Sworn in as a judge in 2000, he currently serves in the Law Division Trial Section. He has tried over 300 jury trials. He has taught at Loyola Law School for the past 30 years. He's a close friend and collaborator of the Institute, most recently spearheading this effort to form a Catholic criminal justice reform network. Tom, would you unmute yourself and turn on your video? Thank you, Michael. Hot off the presses, Professor Bill Pizzi's 2021 book, The Supreme Court's Role in Mass Incarceration, Rutledge Press, will form the center of our discussion tonight on this Thursday within the octave of Easter. This is the second event for the Catholic Criminal Justice Reform Network sponsored by Lumen Christi as part of its program on Catholic social thought. This brand new network connects nearly 100 scholars, judges, lawyers, clergy, and others committed to reform that is shaped by a deep reverence for the dignity of the human being. The network is committed to working in the short term and long term for systemic change. To that end, it will be convening two meetings in person, the first at Seattle University in October 21, and the second at Georgetown in April of 2022. In the interim, there'll be several more remote events and in-person events, so stay tuned. Uh, thank you, Michael, for acknowledging all of our um, many institutional sponsors and a special thanks to Rick Garnett who helped us connect with Judge Beavis uh, and congratulations to Professor Mara McClude who just gave birth to a new baby girl on Holy Saturday. Uh, I also see that Tom Kohler from Boston College has joined us and Mary Claire Birmingham uh, from the Colby House Jail Ministry. I saw Mike Murphy from uh, Loyola's Hank Center has joined us and Jacqueline Helfgott from Seattle University, along with lots of other judges and professors from across the country. Joining us this evening, we have two men who agree that the American criminal justice system is ailing, but they differ as to the diagnosis and as to the cure. Both agree we incarcerate too many people for too long. However, they differ as to how America became the mass incarceration capital of the world, 2.1 million prisoners, 400,000 more than our nearest competitor, China. While Professor Pizzi argues that the US Supreme Court's criminal procedure revolution is largely to blame, Judge Bebas points to the dominance of inside players, judges, and lawyers as the source of the problem. Professor Pizzi and Judge Bebas draw solutions from radically different places. Professor Pizzi looks across our borders to Canada, Great Britain, and Europe. Judge Bebas looks back in time to the American courts during the colonial period and into the 19th century. William T. Pizzi is Professor Emeritus at University of Colorado Law School. Professor Pizzi graduated from Holy Cross College in 1965 
and received his law degree from Harvard Law School in 1971. After obtaining his law degree, he began his legal career as an assistant United States attorney in New Jersey, his home state. In 1975, Professor Pizzi moved to Colorado and began teaching at Colorado Law, where he taught for 35 years. The Honorable Stephanos Vivas is a judge on the US Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. He is the author of the magisterial tome, The Machinery of Criminal Justice, Oxford Press, 2012. This book is a must read for any judge, lawyer, or citizen interested in criminal justice. Before ascending to the appellate bench, he served as a professor of law and criminology at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He graduated summa cum laude in Phi Beta Kappa from Columbia University with a BA in political theory and from Oxford University with a BA in jurisprudence. And he earned his JD from Yale Law School. Judge Bebus clerked for Judge Patrick Higginbotham of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Judge Bebus served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. So Professor Pizzi, please lead us through the argument of your book. While you agree mass incarceration is a problem, you do not agree with the popular ideas about its causes or the popular solutions. You have a novel thesis as to the cause and a radical suggestion regarding a possible solution. Please lay it out for us. Thank you, Judge Donnelly. Uh, I, uh, uh, yes, it is uh, a, uh, a uh, controversial thesis. Uh, I'm an academic or retired academic, so I have uh, a handful of PowerPoint slides that I hope you'll, uh, that I hope can go through pretty quickly to lay out the thesis in the book. William, can you put up the first slide? Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay, I mean, this, uh, Judge Donnelly has really set the stage well. Um, this picture is worth a thousand words. It was the cover of The Economist, uh, and um, I could have put a bar chart out showing that, uh, you know, we're 10 times more punitive, more punitive than, you know, Norway and Japan and other countries, England and Canada, but this picture says it all. Next slide, uh, William. This is the uh, trajectory of incarceration. And if you look at us historically from the 30s and the 40s, the 50s and 60s, we were a pretty moderate country in incarceration. But something happened around the 1980s and the rate, uh, the crime rate, uh, I'm sorry, the incarceration rate rose and rose and rose. It, uh, it quintupled uh, to about uh, 2009. Uh, it has gone down slightly. Uh, I don't have the COVID statistics. I, I've heard it might have gone down another 5%. Um, okay, next slide, William. 
there are people who, there are many things put forward as the causes, the war on drugs, private prisons, increasing long sentences, the victims' rights movement, increasing crime rates, sentencing guidelines, aggressive policing. I don't, uh, I mean, some of these are uh, criminologists consider to be myths, but some of them have force. I don't dispute that. And I, uh, but there is something else that has gone on uh, that we have to take a look at. And uh, and that's really the, the uh, my book. Let, let's, uh, next slide, William. <laughs> the solutions, I mean, that we're trying, like progressive prosecutors, less aggressive policing, fewer arrests, more citations, decriminalization of drugs and minor crimes, lowering mandatory minimum sentences. And, but we've done quite a bit of that. A lot, I mean, we've picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit. The sentencing project says at our rate at which we're cutting incarceration, it will take 72 years to get it in half. So, I mean, even at half, we would still have the highest incarceration rate among Western countries. Next slide, William. My thesis is that decisions of the Supreme Court intended to strengthen the criminal justice system ended up hurting the vast number of defendants. The phenomenon today is called the, uh, the vanishing trial. And uh, my book is a, is a lot about trying to get trials back into the system. The, the prospect of a trial keeps cases from being prosecuted. Prosecutors are always the naysayers in, in, any, in any country, in, whether it's a state's attorney or in, 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 in Denmark or Crown Prosecution Ser Service in England. They're, I mean, they're always saying, no, we can't do that. I can't prove that. I, 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 I know he did it, uh, but I can't. Uh, I, I just can't prosecute this case. Also, when you have trials, you have resource uh, problems. You've got to pick and choose. What crimes are we really going to go after? What are we not going to after? It, it gives you an argument with legislators to try to find other solutions for antisocial behaviors. We've lost, we've become brutally efficient. And, uh, you know, we have an extremely expensive, complicated system. I am very critical of the, of the Supreme Court of many decisions. Uh, I, the court is trying to build a code of criminal procedure that I don't think it doesn't have the expertise to do it. It doesn't have the data as to how big the problem is. It has limited options to solve a problem. It can't link, do trade-offs. It can't undo decisions. So uh, it's, it, it's, it's trying to do something and, and it can make mistakes. The law of unintended consequences applies to court decisions. Even though, I mean, I don't fault the motivation or the historical problems the court was trying to solve. But I, I want to get trials back uh, to where they are uh, uh, possible and a realistic possibility. William, next slide. 
we have one trial model, the, the federal model, and it applies to the states. They're very different systems. The states, the feds have very few violent crimes comparatively. I give you some numbers there, LA alone in 2018. The states have millions of misdemeanors. And I think this is very important. Lots of state crimes are interpersonal crimes. This is true. I mean, the victim, the defendant knew each other. This is true, of course, of uh, rape, uh, domestic abuse, uh, child abuse, uh, assault, but even burglaries. And there are stories here. There are something is going on uh, that deserves to be looked at and deserves to be told. Uh, why would a burglar break into the home of a of a neighbor or why would a burglar break into the home of an ex-spouse or why would two co-workers get into a violent fight in a bar uh what, what's going on here these are these are state cases not so much federal cases given the volume of cases they need some freedom to deviate from the from the federal model next slide william okay this is what comparatives do. So um, I'm gonna put forward a reform proposal and uh, uh, it's based a lot on Canada and England. Uh, okay, here's what we do. We tell the defendant upfront the likely sentence after conviction at a jury trial. We get a, a judge who handles jury trials and the judge says, normally with your record, you would receive this particular sentence on four years in prison. You give the defendant leniency for choosing a non-jury trial. The maximum sentence that can be opposed for the non-jury trial for defense might be six months or a year if there's more than one charge. You give them, you give the defendant other, you give defendants other carrots. If you're convicted in the non-jury court after five years, three years, whatever, you can apply to have that conviction removed from your record. It's still in the police. Uh, the police still have access to it, but it allows you to get it back maybe a license, maybe public housing, maybe uh, improve your job jobs uh, prospects, and maybe add an immigration card. So if you are convicted in the non-jury trial, uh, you won't be deported, or you know. So and you know this is again all uh, flexible, and we could change it different ways. Uh, next slide, William. The goal is a one-hour trial instead of a one-week trial. You want to have five or six trials in a day. You want to make it really attractive to prosecutors and defendants to keep the, card, the charge low enough to allow a non-jury trial. The incentives are the opposite in the United States. It's to the prosecutor's advantage to charge high for plea bargaining leverage. This is, this, these systems put the incentives in a different way. It preserves jury trials for very few cases, which are comparatively few. Now, there are lots of questions here. Um, who chooses the court for what, what they sometimes refer to as an either way offense or a hybrid offense? Is it defendant, the prosecutor? Could we have lay involvement? I can talk more about that, sure. What if the defense wants to call 15 witnesses? What about appellate review? You know, this is, uh, you know, these 
they faced up to these problems and we can work on them. I don't want to suggest that uh, England and Canada are uh, perfect systems. They have major problems. In fact, I've never been to a country, uh, even uh, Scandinavian countries with very low incarceration rates. I've never been to a foreign country when I've asked how are things going with that I don't hear. We have major problems. Everyone has resource problems uh, and, and, and other problems. So, um, okay, William, is that it? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. What I like about the two trial models and this particular trial model is informality is desirable for less serious offenses. Maybe we would allow some informal procedures that should be allowed, like defend it. Do you have any questions for the witness? I mean, after the defense lawyer speaks, speaking to the defendant as a person, um, or maybe when we're talking with a victim, tell us everything that happened that night, tell everything. And we, and we listen a little bit. Maybe explaining a verdict at the end of trial uh, is going to be cathartic in some ways, whether it's a whether the whether it's a guilty verdict or a not guilty verdict. Explaining it can help uh, can help defendants, and it also can help victims. Even if the defendant's not convicted, it gives them a, a rationale that they will listen to, and they can understand why the judge or judges did what they thought. Thank you. <laughs> well, that was a great summary of your thesis and your possible solutions. Uh, Judge Beavis, your approach uh, <laughs> in the machinery of criminal justice is quite different than the comparatist approach, and it's uh, somewhat more based on legal history. Um, give us your response to Professor Pizzi's argument. How would you differ from him as to the causes of mass incarceration and the possible solutions. Thank you, Judge. So I think you have to go back a lot earlier than the Warren Court in the 1950s. You have to go back at least to the 1850s, if not before. In colonial America, we tend to look on the past as benighted, but there was a popular lay check and oversight on justice. People administered the trials themselves as jurors. They knew what the punishments were. And the punishments were temporary. They made people pay a fine or restitution or repair something. And then they were welcomed back. What starts to change this is long before the Warren Court, we get this professionalization. And I'm not saying professionalization is bad. My point is we've had a, just a complete displacement of the ordinary voter or juror of common sense moral judgment in these cases, replaced first by prosecutors displacing victims in their own cases, and then defense lawyers and judges. And by the mid 19th century, we get the birth of the plea bargaining assembly line. Now, plea bargaining has some advantages for the professionals involved. It's faster, it's cheaper. It allows them to process a lot more cases, more cases than they might otherwise. And so, they can put in less work. They don't care as much about the outcome of individual cases. So one concern I have about Professor Pissy's diagnosis is if we just sped up the trials without changing the incentives or people who run them, prosecutors might just widen the net, shovel more people into the system, prosecute more. I think there's some merit to the idea of informality, but if you don't create checks and balances in the system, it'll just encourage the machine to 
to speed up and try more people. What's happened is when you have a system that is run fundamentally by police becoming measured on their arrest rates and prosecutors on their conviction rates and courts on their case processing statistics without meaningful checks by jurors, for example, or the public oversight, et cetera, of these very quick plea bargains, then it, they're not ultimately pegged to common sense moral justice about what people deserve. Now, I'm a former prosecutor. I think prosecutors are trying to do justice, but it is important to keep in mind that a lay juror has to be satisfied that the, the, the punishment or the threat being made to this particular defendant fits the crime, fits what this person deserves. A prosecutor may have the sense, well, I'm willing to offer you this, but if you don't play ball, you get a much higher sentence. And that much higher sentence is not because you're more dangerous than the other guys necessarily. It's because you wouldn't play ball and plea bargaining, or maybe because your defense lawyer wouldn't play ball and plea bargaining, or maybe because you couldn't afford a very good lawyer. Um, and so that system takes on a life of its own. So professionalization is one of the big things that, that, that divorces these judgments from common sense moral judgment. The other big change in our system has been federalization or the loss of local ties. For a very long time, things are decided at a very small town level. Now, America grows, of course. You can't stay at the tiny New England town meeting all this time. But we get to a stage where then crime is pushed up to the state level. And then increasingly in the latter 20th century up to the federal level. Lots of federal funding, even for things like militarized SWAT teams and the like. And we get crime becoming a political football. Instead of judging at the retail level, face to face, what this person, flesh and blood person deserves, we're based on bumper sticker crime policies. We're imagining, you know, generalized images or Willie Horton images or things in, in horrific newspaper stories that may be very atypical of particular cases. So when you survey, ordinary people, and they've just read a, a sensational news story, they think, ah, oh, this is so horrible. But then when you give them the case file that a juror would see, you see that actually their punishment intuitions are pretty reasonable and often milder than mandatory minimum sentences or sentencing guidelines might require. Now, those minima and guidelines might be in there in part to be a plea bargaining chip for prosecutors. But if you just change the system and speed it up, without removing the incentives, these war and court rights or anything else just become more plea bargaining chips. So part of the solution has to be to push more power down to a retail level and look at cases more individually, at least the most serious sentences, the most serious cases. Maybe you have that, that rather than a one hour jury trial on liability, you have a one or two hour sentencing mini trial where the prosecutor can not unilaterally insist on a mandatory minimum, but has to justify it to a jury of peers and explain why this person is this dangerous or this blameworthy or the like. And so ultimately we can't just decarcerate by wishing the problem away. We have to change the incentives. And we also have to get rid of the idea that this is just about the war on drugs. The majority of people in prison are there for violent crime. If you add violent and property crimes, it's more than two thirds of people. So it has to involve calibrating punishment to crime, even in some cases where the person definitely needs some real punishment. It's not just gonna be done by decarcerating marijuana or other cases. It involves doing more face-to-face -face retail justice that isn't going to be inflated by, by, by uh, threats and gamesmanship and plea bargaining.
Now, I detected a shout out for uh, this book uh, in uh, Judge Bebas's remarks uh, because uh, locked in uh, John Pfaff's book, I know is cited by uh, uh, Professor Pizzi. Um, and I know that that is, is really at the heart of a lot of your addressing the problem of what is going to cure mass incarceration. And I know Judge Pizzi or Professor Pizzi, you, you again agree with Pfaff that it's, it's really not long sentences or drug sentences that are driving this but lots of three to four year sentences is what FAF has uh, included and mostly for violent crime. I wanted you to have some ability to respond to uh, Judge Bebas's analysis of your book. Um, you guys differ, although I think you're open to certain amounts of lay participation. You certainly cite the lay participation in the British system. Uh, that is the centerpiece of Judge Bebas's book is that that will restore the moral compass to our system that's dominated by insiders. Uh, what's your response to uh, his remarks? Well, I think, uh, uh, I'm not sure how you get this, this idealized uh, lay participation that he wants. I'm fine with lay, with, uh, I, you know, England has a tradition of magistrates court. They've had it, for 200 years, uh, our Supreme Court never talks about that when it when it talks about <laughs> jury trials. Uh, there are lay people from the community that uh, try these cases. They have 16,000. Their pay is zero. I'm fine with with lay participation. Uh, I'm also fine with mixed panels. Uh, and uh, I know that's anathema. Uh, we can't possibly do that. But uh, I, you know, I think I, I've. Now explain a little bit what that is. What mixed panel? Well, you might have a judge and and uh, four lay people or or three lay people. Uh, 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 you know, so that the judge has a little bit of expertise uh, uh, on it. So, but I mean, the magistrates they have some training, but they're retired uh, teachers, uh, you know, bakers, whatever they are. I mean, they're 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 from the community. It's an it's an honorific. Uh, and uh, now they don't use them, you know, for every case in the big cities, they use, they use uh, judges, uh, single judges, because the, the one thing about lay participation is it's slow. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, we can idealize, let's have lay participation. It, it's not, it's not so easy. My main, I mean, I, I, his Judge Bevis's history of jury trials is is terrific. I mean, the history our jury trials heavily lawyered, uh, rehearsing witnesses is not this is not historical jury trial, and let's not pretend that it is. Uh, juries in the earliest days, uh, you know, they had powers that that. That, I mean, they could ask the judge to 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 uh, give to demand royal clemency, and the judges would always give it. They could attach riders to the verdict. They worked with the judge. The judge leaned on them sometimes. So you know, to say that we are you know that, that we have the right, we, we understand jury trials, England and Canada don't. I I think is you know uh, I mean let's keep the jury trials for the most important. Uh, cases. Let's involve lay magistrates. Let's try it. 
and see how people like it. Let's try talking directly to the defendant sometimes. Uh, uh, you know, or you know, let's try letting the victim tell his story, her story, from beginning to end before we get into questioning. Now, Judge Bevis, it's so, it sounds like he's agreeing with a number of your concepts. He's giving voice to the defendant. He's incorporating late participation. Uh, it's just in a little different form through the magistrate instead of the jury. I I think that's a, a good idea. I, I I see real barriers to being able to do that at the trial per se. Any lawyer, defense lawyer worth his salt is going to tell the defendant to to clam up. And you know the way we've interpreted the privileges against self-incrimination probably too broad, but that's that's where our law is. What I've suggested, which would get around those problems, is why don't you do something like this at sentencing? And for those religiously inclined in the audience, it's quite telling that victims often care a lot about getting apologies. Defendants want to express remorse. They've often got guilt on them. And Professor Pitsy is quite right. The large majority of people in our criminal justice system, it's not stranger crimes. It's predominantly crimes against co-workers, neighbors, uh, relatives, lovers, ex-spouses. These are people you're going to have to go back to living with because almost everybody comes out of prison at some point, And certainly, you know, most people should. And the prospect of a restorative conference or discussion, you know, builds on what our sentencing is like. But letting the parties, you know, after guilt has been established, there's not the same self-incrimination problem. Let the defendant talk. Let the victim talk. You know, victims sometimes get stereotyped as being very bloodthirsty and vengeful. And yet, generally, they're not demanding the absolute heaviest punishment. They want to understand why they were wronged. They want to vent their anger. They want to be, feel like they've been heard and gotten their day in court. They probably would like to get some restitution, material help, help with medical bills and things. Um, but generally, it, it helps to restore their dignity to treat them with respect. And our current system gives victims very little role until they get to sentencing. Maybe they get to read a scripted statement after the plea bargain is a fait accompli, and you know the prosecutor runs the show. I think by by empowering victims, you know, subject to the, the a, a jury there deciding, okay, this is appropriate. This what he's asking for is too harsh, etc. I think some punishment is appropriate, but maybe they wouldn't feel like as much was necessary if the victim was visibly you know, felt better because of receiving an apology, a promise of restitution, some kind of plan to work things out, especially since most of them will have to go back to living with one another. Now, I, I wanna go deeper into that subject of punishment because this is something that both of you share a deep commitment to proportionate penalties. You are mutually horrified, uh, and this shows in your books, by three strikes life sentences for stealing three golf clubs or forging a check for $88.30. And unlike utilitarians, both of you, uh, and I think this is grounded in your faith commitment to a certain extent, find these grossly disproportionate sentences immoral. Uh, they are unjust, and you both find them profoundly troubling. However, uh, Professor Pizzi highlights the Canadian statutory requirement for proportionality and Canadians uh, court enforcement of this provision. Uh, and he also touts uh, the American Law Institute and its sentencing guidelines. Judge Bevis, as you've been detailing your, your solution, it's far different. It's grounded in more popular, 
rather than a technocratic solution. And it's involving lay participation, both in the sentencing process, and you, you hold up the three state courts that do sentencing, uh, and you say that that's an example that the rest of the state should follow. And also this lay participation, meaning involving the victim and defendant and giving them voice. So what's your reaction to Professor Pizzi's remedy for grossly disproportionate sentencing and the ALI and the Canadian approaches? I, I certainly don't claim any expertise in, in Canada. Uh, all I can say is if you layer statutory reforms on top of a system where the, the incentives and the power still rest with prosecutors to, to dictate plea bargaining terms, that uh, they will still dictate things that aren't proportionate and judges habituated to deferring to prosecutors to get cases over with or their hands tied by mandatory sentences will not be able to do much with it. Now, I'm also not sure, I, I think we both agree that proportionality uh, ought to have a retributive baseline. And our Supreme Court uh, has not, certainly has not interpreted the constitution that way. There are some good originalist arguments that, that it was understood that there was a retributive baseline to what punishments fit what crimes. But I, I think the more reliable way to introduce it in the system is to create checks and balances on unilateral prosecutorial power. And that's why I think some lay participation in the sentencing decision would make prosecutors justify things, not just in terms of this person wouldn't play ball, but this person deserves this sentence in some way. So I'm not opposed, but I think you need some institutional reforms to make the statutory proportionality command meaningful. Professor PC? Well, I, I mean, I think, I, I mean, this is a, uh, a very big topic. Uh, what is sentencing? I've moved many cases for sentencing back in the dark days, many years ago. I never made a recommendation on sentencing. I wasn't allowed to. It was not my business. It's up to the judge. Yes, I had input to the pre-sentence report, but it wasn't my, it wasn't my call. Uh, and, you know, I've seen victims. Uh, I've done, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of an expert on rape victims in Europe and uh, represented by lawyers, and they they don't ask for a specific sentencing. They that's the that's not not their not their job. So I I mean I really think you know, when you say prosecutors are you know going to get the maximum. If you want that, if you want to make it an adversary hearing, let, I mean that, we just have the discussion. What is sentencing? We have a big battle in the United States. Should we don't want prosecutors to sentence judges to sentence? Well, I mean, why should judges sentence Judge Bebas? What is the they're neutral at trial? They're the neutral referee, and suddenly when it comes to sentencing, they're supposed to call the shots. I mean, there's an inconsistency here, and I want judges to do more at trial. I want them to control that control that trial. I want them to ask to talk to the defendant or do things or clarify things. And I, and I want them to sentence as well. I don't want prosecutor sentencing. No. So I, mean, I don't think I'm, I'm not really, um, I, I think you're, you're, you're painting prosecutors, uh, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a bad light, putting them in a bad light. Now to help you out, professor, a, a yeah. big part of your systemic reform would be pushing cases down to what we would call the misdemeanor level. 
So the punish, maximum punishment would be six months or less. So you, you would really push know. down what, what would in Illinois would be class three and four felonies, uh, and maybe even some of the ones and twos, and leaving just the X's with the felony range for imprisonment over a year, so that the that, that majority of crime would be pushed down for sentences of six months or under. So that would that be the systematic reform, Judge Beavis, that you're thinking would then force change, or would that work? I don't quite know how you how you get there. If you're saying substantively you can't impose these things, well, okay, I can I can wave my magic wand and wish for a pony. But if you want to ask about how to make changes, I think it's a lot easier to sell people on some kind of institutional reform. Well, of course, the victim ought to have a role or justify it to some other people than it is to say, okay, suddenly we're going to slash all punishment by 85%, you know, including for violent crimes. I, I, good luck finding some politicians who are going to, to do that. Um, and if you're leaving prosecutors the option of where to file, then I think they'll just continue to file in the in the felony courts and then count on their plea bargaining leverage to make most people give up their trial rights entirely. So I'm just not sure how you'd get there. So we have lots of questions from a great group of um, uh, our audience. So I'm gonna lead off with a professor, uh, Steve Garvey from Cornell. And he asked the question, uh, and uh, this is to either of you, as I understand it, the German law has a separate category of offenses called administrative offenses distinct from criminal offenses. They are distinct, at least in so far as they are adjudicated through a procedural system separate from and more streamlined than the system which criminal offenses are adjudicated. They're also distinct insofar as the sanctions for administrative offenses is limited to fines. I would also imagine that they are distinct insofar as fines imposed for administrative violations are or should be conceptualized as penalties as distinct from punishment. How does this uh, German solution um, contrast with yours, Professor Pizzi? Well, I mean, it isn't, I mean, I, I like it. I mean, I, I wanna get cases out of the criminal justice system and I wanna have other, other ways of doing that. I, I mean, I'm not fully familiar with these administrative penalties, but, uh, I mean, haven't we done that with a lot of driving offenses and other things? We've kind of made them, you know, taken them a little bit out of the out of the cr criminal justice system and handle them in other ways. Uh, so, I mean, I think uh, I think that's great. Uh, you know, let's not uh, let's get them out of the misdemeanor courts. I, I spent a lot of time on misdemeanors because I think, you know, it's it's it's, it's, it's the front door of the prison as uh, the pr prison policy initiative puts it. So I'm very much concerned about the literally millions of people who go, who are come in and go through our, our uh, misdemeanor courts. So well, I, Professor, I, Professor I, Garvey has a, a follow-up question. Yeah. What type of crimes go before the magistrate courts in the UK? It, I mean, it could be a burglary, could be an assault, could be, you know, these are what we, I mean, these could be, um, it, it's not, you know, classified as a misdemeanor. These are minor felonies, the, you know, uh, um, in, uh, you know, you can, you can do it a lot of different ways, uh, but, um, you know, most people are going to, they're going to choose to go into that 
into the magistrate's court because it, the punishment is lenient. They're going to plead guilty. Many of them are going to plead guilty. But there are people who want to tell what happened, and and we should give them a chance. So I don't, I, you know, I, it's not a plea bargain. It's a, it's a, it's not a punishment. It, I, I think it's it's not a trial penalty. It, it's a reward for choosing a simpler trial. Uh, uh, Professor Renee Lerner from GW has a, a question. Uh, a, a problem with all common law systems, she says, at least historically, is the lack of official investigation and an investigative file. In inquisitorial systems, the official investigation and the investigative file is a major way that criminal proceedings can be uh, made quite efficient. The judge, defense, and the prosecutor all have full access to the file. Uh, judge Bebus, do you have a comment about this open fi file policy and do you think it would be advantageous? I, I think there's a lot to admire about the German system, both in Professor Garvey and Professor Lerner's uh, questions. I, I'm skeptical about legal transplants. I think that the German system works very well given their history, given a very apolitical career track and you know, strict partisan neutrality. I think in a country where, you know, our country where prosecution is often a stepping stone to political office, uh, where there are, you know, uh, frequent elections and ads over these things, et cetera, I don't think one could have the same confidence in it. Now, that's not to say there aren't some good benefits to be had by making police investigation maybe more neutral, more even-handed, more thorough. But I think it's still a large distance between making those tweaks to an American police system and introducing a very thoroughly professionalized civilian uh, continental European system. Right, I've got to follow up with some more questions and please feel free, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to add any questions you have in the Q&A and we'll get to them as we can. We have a, a question from Father David Jones. He asks, uh, given the fact that we all, criminals and judges, operate with bias, is it valuable to think of a system that does not need to be punitive and that might focus on being restorative of the community? And uh, Judge Beavis, you focus on the pluses and minuses of restorative justice in your book uh, and the pluses and minuses of uh, therapeutic justice. So maybe you might lead off the comment. Sure. Father uh, Jones. The, uh, you know, in our, uh, of course, no one believes that the system should be all experts or no experts. The question is what the right mix or blend is. And our system has tilted towards a very formal rule-centered approach to seeking equality, as if this can all be guaranteed ex ante, um, and as if that's gonna deal with problems of bias. But the problem is that it doesn't. You know, We've been pursuing rules in the death penalty for 45 years and, you know, the skews in the death penalty are as maybe as great as they always were. Uh, mandatory minimum penalties are advertised as getting rid of racial bias. Everyone gets the same punishment, and yet they're routinely plea bargained away and, and bias is reintroduced there. I think the more fruitful role is to say, look, of course people are going to have some biases. Let's deal with people not as an abstract criminal over there, but flesh and blood face to face with the kind of discussion and dialogue Professor Pitsy talks about and the evidence about debiasing is maybe you start out with a stereotype about somebody as a, a, a black offender or something like that. 
But once you see someone as a flesh and blood person and hear that story, you can get past that and people can certainly try to. It's a different effect when you have some opportunity to, to discuss and go back and forth. And it's not just, you know, a, a faceless person or hiding behind the lawyer's coattails or something like that. And so I think it's more fruitful at a very low level to have retail face-to-face -face discussions and dialogue rather than thinking that turning it all over to experts will avoid this. Because by the way, psychological literature suggests that experts are prey to these biases too. So I always have to say, well, if you're afraid American jurors are gonna be biased, well, that's maybe true of Americans in general. Let's bring it out into the open, let's discuss it openly, and let's just work on getting past it by seeing one another as human beings face to face. Professor Pizzi, I wanted to put to you a question that uh, has come from two members of our audience, uh, our executive director, Thomas Levergood and Judge Ramon Ocasio. Uh, Thomas Levergood remarks that when he saw the graph for the rise of the incarceration in the 1950s and 60s, the first time, he noticed, in a sense, it corresponded to the ending of Jim Crow in the South and legal segregation in the North. Effectively, it appears, the dominant powers in society controlled African-Americans via segregation before and via legal oppression afterwards. And Judge Ocasio uh, points to uh, the new Jim Crow and I think, Professor Pizzi, you largely agree um, that there, there is a, a systemic racism in our system. Uh, so could you comment on those, uh, those questions? Well, I, I want simple trials because poor defendants cannot afford a one-week trial. They can't afford to miss work. They, you know, they have family obligations and other things. And so I, I, I agree the system is any very expensive, uh, heavily procedurized system rewards the wealthy and the sophisticated and punishes the unsophisticated. I could, you know, I have statistics in the book about the, the decline of jury trials in uh, the decline of, tri of trials in New York City after juries were extended to uh, misdemeanors. And it's just, it's, it, it, it's, it's horrifying. And uh, the acquittal rate when they were tried to judges was 49%, which suggested to me that judges are doing what they should have done. Now, I wanna say something in relation to that, to what the, what the, the question the father asked. Uh, anthropologists, describe tribal criminal justice systems in positive terms. The courts are cheap, they're open to all, and they're informal. They are seen to restore social harmony and repair a tear in the social fabric. Western courts, by comparison, are seen as stiff, formal, and anti-democratic. I, I, I remember talking with a, 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 a uh, uh, came a friend from Kenya, a lawyer, and I said, "Well, you know, when 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 the Kikuyu have a trial, what 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 do you? I mean, how does it work? I mean, someone steals your cow." He goes, "Well, the first thing we do is we have a dinner together." And I'm going, "I'm going. That is so beautiful. We get together." Uh, I mean, talk about restorative justice before we get to, and we, we're all part of this together. So, um, I, I, you know, I think the system absolutely is uh, skewed uh, uh, 
very much against uh, poor and unsophisticated. There's a, a report, no day in court from the Bronx public defenders. They had 50 defendants who had, they thought winnable cases, they had no criminal records. And, you know, a year later, uh, none of them had had a full suppression hearing, a full trial. Some got their cases dismissed, but it took them five days in court. That, that's just, uh, it, it just is, it, it, it's just not, it's not human, it's not fair, uh, and we can do a lot better. I'm not saying Canada doesn't have its problems or England, but I just think some informal, informal trials and restorative justice too. Uh, if there's some way of doing it, we ought to be turning in that direction more and more. Uh, Judge Peter, what are your thoughts, particularly about the, the race issue? I, I uh, well, what I wanted to do was was come back to the the terms of the question about the graph, and I think it is important to contextualize Professor Pizzi's graph by noting what uh, Professor Bernard Harcourt at Columbia did. He overlaid the incarceration graph, which shows that dramatic rise, with the deinstitutionalization graph, which shows mental inst uh, health institutions, you know, emptying their doors in the 1960s and 70s. If you put those two together the rate of uh, institutionalization in either kind of facility is much closer to being constant. And so a lot of what we've done is emptied some people who really needed mental health treatment and, and, and were not you know, necessarily safe to be on the streets and put them out in places where they weren't being overseen or getting the medication. And then of course, they wind up in the criminal justice systems and our prisons are the largest mental health institutions in most cities. Um, so I think that really adds some more context to what looks like an otherwise, you know, unexplained rise. So you don't need to, to go to the, you know, the explanation that was offered by one of the questioners to understand that there's a, a broader phenomenon here and mental health as well as substance abuse is bound up with it. Yeah. And, and do you think that, that race is at all an issue? I mean, uh, in the new Jim Crow uh, and uh, Michelle Alexander's work, what's your response to that? Well, there certainly are racial skews in the system and I do not deny that. But Michelle Alexander's book says things like the war on drugs, a majority of people are in prison for drug crimes and that is demonstrably false. The rates are 19%. She, in some places, appears to be treating, conflating the federal, the nine, 10% of people in the federal system with the numbers in the country as a whole. And as I said, a majority of people are in for violent crime, two thirds are violent or drug. And most of these acts are things that no civilized society can brook. There are certainly lots of problems in our society and many of them correlate or are connected with race, um, but her diagnosis is too pat. Uh, now, Francis, Professor Francis Chen from uh, University of Minnesota Law School asked a question, uh, and I think this is really appropriate to uh, uh, Professor Pizzi. Uh, sentencing is an art as much as a science. Even with guidelines, uh, there is room for adjustments. How much, if at all, should a judge's faith influence his or her sentencing? Well, that's, that's, well, I mean, I think uh, proportionality is, uh, to me, I mean, it's 
it's what most faiths uh, are based on. I mean, that we all should be punished for our sins in proportion to what we've done. And, uh, and of course, remorse, uh, uh, you know, uh, plays a role in that. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's terrible to be uh, locking these young people away, uh, you know, it, it, with these, you know, 120 year sentences, uh, you know, it's just, I, I, now I have to say, I mean, you know, and I think Judge Bebas, I think also said, it's not the case that everyone in prison is there for a long, a long period of time. And, uh, you know, John Pfaff, you know, says, I think something like, you know, 75% of defendants are out, yeah, are out in, uh, in something like six, six years of even those for violent crime. And, uh, you know, the median sentence is maybe four years or something like that. So, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I, I mean, I think judges, uh, you know, it's not like they're throwing the book at, at everyone. I do think when the Supreme Court threw a monkey wrench into what the ALI had done, the ALI was strongly committed, the model penal code sentencing reform, proportionality, it, it dominates, it, it controls every, any other purpose of sentencing. They even have appellate courts there who could go below mandatory minimums if proportionality demanded. There's so many good things in that in that uh, proposal on probation, on parole, on uh, economic crimes, economic penalties. On you know, it's 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 the best that we can we can come up with. And uh, uh, I I just think what the Supreme Court did in Booker versus Washington was. Uh, was a, a, a terrible, uh, a terrible disaster. We have a question from Robert Molina who says, Gelb called prosecutors the biggest and most significant black box to be opened in the system. And he quotes uh, John Pfaff as saying, we really have no data whatsoever on what prosecutors do, almost none. We don't know what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what drives their decision process. So. Uh, Judge Bebas, you, you center around this problem. Uh, without any data, how do we know that the prosecutor is the source of the problem? Well, prosecutors have this huge buffet of cases, and they could choose to take a number of approaches to it. Um, the best that we know is that in prosecutors' election races, and you know, Ronald Wright has done empirical studies of their advertising, they're largely driven by, you know, rhetoric about, okay, I'm, I'm tough on crime, I have a high conviction rate, I have integrity, challengers might mention a scandal or two, but there's surprisingly little in the way of trade-offs or policies. It was a very frustrating thing the time I moderated the debate among the candidates for DA in Philly, and I asked them, okay, do you want to take a, a, a higher volume approach uh, or do you want to screen toughly up front and just, you know, take the really strong cases ahead? And all of their attitudes were, well, this is the way we did it when I was a young assistant in the office. There's not a lot of uh, reflection. It's kind of a, a, a moving ahead with these are the cases that are set in front of me. And it's, it, it makes it very difficult to proactively 
set priorities, especially since so much of this is dependent on the way this jurisdiction has kind of proceeded. It's almost on autopilot or, or culture. Um, in, in the business world, you get management consultants and you have accounting and you have books and you have you know, successful CEOs move to another company and, and revitalize it. And that's not the way government works. We know very little, the IT is bad. We don't collect much in the way of policies and they proceed. Uh, all, all we can really say is, you know, America's crime rate, it's substantially down from where I was 25 years ago, but it's much higher than it was in the earlier parts of the graph uh, that Professor Pizzi showed. And there's political pressure. It's hard to turn people away. Um, it's also certainly true that when you get a bunch of drug cases handed to you on a silver platter by the police, it's, it's hard to say no to them, uh, even if there's a question about whether this is what they, they, they should be doing. I mean, you're getting a few prosecutors now or, or legislators have, have some local questions about this, but for the most part, there's a, there's a plethora of crimes for them to prosecute. And some of it is a, ge a general, you know, pre-criminal justice system breakdown in family and other mediating institutions that the criminal justice system needs to be more humble about what it can and can't fix. But most of this is anecdote or common sense. It is really a black box to, to get an explanation because prosecutors don't give reasons. They don't have to, and judges won't force them to open the black box. So Professor Pizzi, uh, Peter Meissenbacher asks, what are your thoughts on back-end sentencing reform for those already incarcerated? In many ways, it seems to avoid interfering with judicial and prosecutorial discretion, as well as circumvent totally overhauling the system itself. And he's working on a bill centered around this. So he's wondering if you could give any advice. Well, I, I mean, I really haven't thought of it, but it seems, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like the idea and, uh, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, the, the possibility of wiping out your conviction and, you know, maybe that it, probably that exists in many states. I, I don't really know, but, um, you know, it seems to me there ought to be some other way. Um, you know, is he trying to lower sentences of people who have already been convicted or is he trying to pick out those imprisoned who uh, should be released. Um, I, I'm not sure. My, I, my, own, my only worry is that uh, the studies that they've shown uh, is that psychopaths are really, really good at getting out of prison because they can push all the levers in, in a way with a straight face. So I, that's my only uh, my only cautionary, cautionary note there. But uh, you know, these sentences uh, that are so brutally long, I mean, we've had them in, in, in uh, I, I mean, I think we have a pretty strong criminal justice system in Colorado, but, you know, we, we had uh, juveniles with, uh, you know, serving sentences, life without parole, and, and the crimes were sometimes um, understandable. Uh, kids who had been abused, who killed the parent, you know, so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I would have to see this specific bill, but I, uh, I guess I'm, I would certainly be in favor of lower sentences. You know, sometimes people think six months, you know, six months is nothing, you know, harshness beats harshness. And, you know, uh, 
we've all been through a very tough year. And, you know, you, you know, to say we'll have three, two more years of this, you know, that'd be pretty tough. So uh, uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I think uh, uh, lowering sentences back end, if it can be done, I, I'm for it. So uh, Judge Beavis, uh, Shiquan Lu asks a question, why does mass incarceration exist in the USA? In other words, what factors led to the mass incarceration? Well, there are, there are many causes and I'm, I'm not crazy about the term mass incarceration in part because it, it sort of suggests we're, we're just rounding people up and herding them onto cattle cars. I mean, these are people who have committed wrongs. Um, and some of the problem is that criminal justice is supposed to be a last resort, but a lot of the Tocquevillian mediating institutions in our society have broken down. I mean, there should be parents and schools and churches and others catching juvenile delinquency and early miscreants and you know, creating remedies. But when dads aren't there, for example, it's a little bit harder to, to, to count on them or trust them. And, I also think it's um, it's a very strange thing that, you know, the first few times someone does something wrong and in criminal justice, the sentences are graduate and escalate in a way that almost might habituate a young offender to being involved and then wind up wham with a very heavy federal sentence in a, in a surprising way that certainly isn't going to deter them, but they've then kind of gotten used to a life of, of crime. So that's some of the problem. And then some of the problem is that we don't have very good ways of helping people turn their lives around after the first time they wind up in jail or prison. I mean, I certainly am quite open to Professor Garvey's idea, you know, administrative offenses, there are some things that don't need, the, the most minor misdemeanors don't need to be in the criminal justice system. But when someone commits something moderately serious and needs some prison, what do we, what do, we do with that person? We don't offer a lot of, a lot in prison in part because historically we focus on rehabilitation as if it's about giving people skills or job training. I think a, a, a Christian inspired approach would understand it more as reformation, which is confronting one's fallenness and sinfulness and building better habits um, to, to, to both uh, repent and atone, but also turn over a new leaf afterwards. Instead, what do we do? We give very little drug treatment to most people. Uh, we give them very little on the inside. We turn them loose with $20 or $50 in a bus ticket. They're dumped off in their old neighborhood at 6 a.m. And then we're surprised that they go back to drug dealing with people on the street corner. Oh, and by the way, as a result of various protectionist legislation culminating in the Davis-Bacon Act in, um, in the Great Depression, we ban them from dozens of professions. Now, look, of course, you don't want the child molester to go back and be a teacher. You don't want the embezzler to be an accountant. But in many states, we ban them from being undertakers, beauticians, plumbers. It's rank protectionism. So then we're surprised when they go back to a life of crime. I have to say, if you can deal with the establishment clause problems, I am a big fan of the work of prison fellowship ministries because what they do is they go in and they find a wing in a prison and they say, okay, Prisoners who volunteer to come here, we, local congregations will partner with this wing and they will provide a lot of the hands-on work that the government doesn't have the money or manpower to provide. They'll meet with the inmates. They'll pray with them. 
will get them to confront the wrongfulness of what they've done. They'll teach them job skills. And then when they come back out on the outside, they'll help them line up an apartment and a job waiting for them and a group of friends in the congregation. These are the things, the positive things we need to give people a positive alternative to returning to a life on crime. Oh, and by the way, the other thing we can do is we can strengthen family bonds. Instead, what do we do in the prison system? We make collect calls prohibitively expensive so the prisons can make a bunch of money off them. We make visitation by, by spouses or girlfriends and kids difficult and humiliating. There have been times when we go and deliberately exile prisoners to the far end of the state. So we, we sever the family bonds that are the most pro-social things that give people a reason to want to grow up and become the father and husband and things, an alternative to a life of crime. Because we do know that when people are stable, are, are, are husbands and fathers, you know, they, they wind up investing more in the kids and being less reckless and being more responsible. We ought to strengthen those bonds instead of fraying them as we do. And Professor Pizzi, I have a question from Father Oscar Granados. He asks, what is the real relation between private prisons and the problems in our criminal justice system? And he asked this because he thinks that without the element of community that brings restorative justice, uh, we ignore the responsibility uh, for the problem and sort of, I guess, uh, riffing off of what uh, Judge Beavis had just said. So uh, do you have yeah, any- I, Well, I, I don't know much about private prisons, except that only a very small percentage of uh, of those incarcerated are in private prisons. I think it's 8%, 6%. Some states don't have any private prisons. So I, I you know, I, I don't, I can't tell you much more than uh, about it than that. Um, uh, and some states are eliminating them, but uh, I, I don't think that is a driver of mass incarceration. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty small group of, uh, of those incarcerated. A lot of people on the left like to blame uh, private prisons, but they are a small share. And honestly, if you look at things like the California Three Strikes Laws, they were pushed by the prison guard union, overwhelmingly public prison guard union. So they themselves have financial incentives. And one of my points that, that I like to make to people on the right is people on the right generally are fans of public choice. Well, you know, big government grows bigger. Apply the same analysis to to criminal justice institutions, you know, prisons themselves take on a, you know, have incentives and financial life of their own, whether they're private or public. Uh, one last question from Professor Garvey for you, uh, Professor Pizzi. Um, a March 2021 DOJ Bureau of Justice Statistics document entitled Time Served in State Prisons 2018 states that over half of violent offenders, 57% were released in less than three years. The exception seems to be murder. That leaves me wondering how many people in prison are truly being punished disproportionately. That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, the problem, the problem uh, of mass incarceration is the churn of people into prison and out of prison. Uh, you know, the prison policy initiative says 600,000 people are released every year from prison, which is good. If we have 2 million, that, that sounds like a lot, but 600,000 more go in there. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, certainly some people get brutal sentences and three strike sentences or, you know, uh, 
life without parole. And, and, but um, it, the problem is is the churn, and uh, and I I can't help but feel that uh, some of those people, a, a, a percentage of them, are innocent. They can't afford to go to trial. The prosecutors have weapons, and that's how pr prosecutors talk about them to coerce pleas. And even in misdemeanor courts, you, they cannot afford to, uh, you know, to to go to trial. They, I mean, the procedure is a weapon against them. So, uh, uh, you know, it's this. Uh, you know, we. I mean, we don't need to prosecute that many people. Canada is not a perfect country, but they've stayed at about 100 citizens per 100,000. Uh, 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 their incarceration rate, it stayed steady. Their crime rates track ours. They're not goody goodies up there. They have their problems too. Uh, and, you know, what is it? Now, maybe it's some of the things that uh, Judge Biba says. Maybe they do a lot, lot better uh, in uh, helping people avoid uh, avoid incarceration, I you know I don't know as as much about it. That's the kind of thing I'd like to find out more about. But uh, also, they have a trial system that forces the screening of what you're gonna what you're gonna prosecute. So that's that's uh, um, that seems to me uh, you know uh, a, a good tactic to try to get our incarceration rate cut down significantly. And Judge Bebas, the last word, we're out of time. <laughs> Thank you for sponsoring these uh, conversations. They're important ones to have. And I think that the voice of faith, the voice of uh, moral judgment and justice has been missing from these debates for too long. I know that we may come at these things from somewhat different perspectives, but I think that the, the confidence that everyone in the system is made in the image and likeness of God, and that everyone needs to both be responsible and accountable for wrongdoing, but still treated with dignity is, has to be central to criminal justice in the 21st century. And on those rousing words, uh, I'd like you all to join me uh, with virtual applause in thanking uh, both uh, Professor Fitzi and Judge Beavis for a very enlightening evening. And I also urge you uh, to consider purchasing both of their books uh, and uh, I'll get them both up for you. Um, Professor Pizzi's The Supreme Court's Role in Mass Incarceration in Rutledge Press and Judge Beavis's The Machinery of Criminal Justice, Oxford Press 2012. Also, please follow the Catholic Criminal Justice Reform Network on Lubin Christie's website, and I wish you a joyous 50 days of Easter and a good night. Thank you very much.